Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Success Harbor Podcast with George Mazaros, where it's all about making success happen for you. Hi, everyone. This is George Mazaros with Success Harbor, and I have Brent Cooper with me. Brent is a New York Times bestselling author of The Lean Entrepreneur. Brent helps organizations big and small innovate. Brent is also the co-founder of Moves the Needle Group. Welcome. Thanks for having me, George. Thank you very much for being here, Brent. What do you think is the reason for the lean movement this time in, in history? It's, it seems so logical, but, but still, you know, we haven't been talking about it uh, with using this language uh, before. Why do you think it's happening now in history? Well, so the, the lean startup and lean entrepreneur uh, stuff that I write about uh, uses the word lean very purposefully. Uh, the, the term lean comes from... Uh, the concepts of lean manufacturing, which described how Toyota was building cars in uh, in Japan in, in the 1950s. And what they discovered is that you could eliminate a lot of waste, uh, wasted resources, wasted time, wasted money. If you try to manufacture goods, I mean, so imagine you're manufacturing cars, um, but that you, you build an assembly line so that you're only building uh, what a part or assembling based on the demand of the downstream process. Um, it, Henry Ford actually started the manufacturing that way, but it was really because he was only building uh, one car, right? So he's sort of famous for saying you can have a, a car in any model or color you want as long as it's uh, as long as it's black. And and so he actually produced. He sort of invented this assembly line. Um, that was doing one-piece construction, so you're all of the components of the car based upon uh, market demand. So uh, Lean Startup really came around because we weren't building startups or new businesses that way at all. Instead, we had evolved uh, sort of these big management practices, big corporation management practices where we could we felt like we could predict the market and that we should go and build the technology and launch the business based simply be, um, by what's you know between your ears. And so uh, the lean startup came about like uh, out of uh, Steve Blank's customer development work and really was describing that successful entrepreneurs uh, can actually do uh, engage with their customers in order to learn whether their idea has any value in the marketplace at all before one spends a lot of time and money building products that nobody wants. And so that's the bottom line reason why we're doing lean startup stuff is to get out and validate your market before you spend a lot of time and money building stuff that people don't need or want or will be willing to change their life to use. And so I think that we're in a period of great uncertainty. There's lots of transformation going on, you know, new technology, um, it's kind of crazy out there, and so when you face uncertainty, it's way better to get out and experiment than it is to just build uh, build something that that you imagine. So, so you you talk about the importance of understanding your customers deeply as as a key component or element of uh, being a lean entrepreneur. There is a difference between asking convenient questions versus gaining a real a, a deep understanding of your customers. What does it take? What does it take to get that that real deep customer understanding? Where where do companies miss miss that opportunity? Yeah, that's a great question, George. So so this isn't this idea of understanding your com- customer uh, deeply is not asking customers what they want and then doing what they say. 
customers often don't understand what the greater context is, what the greater technology is available to them. So they can only answer that question within their existing domain knowledge. And so what you really want to do is, is number one, uh, try to understand their pain. So uh, if you could, the more you can understand, you know, sort of what a day in the life of your customer is like, and how your product would actually make that life better, then the the more you're understanding what will they'd be willing to change in their life in order to accept and bring your product into their their routine. And this applies to businesses as well as customers. And ultimately, winning companies create this emotional value for their customers. It makes the moms feel like better moms. It makes business managers heroes within their company because they've saved a tremendous amount of money or they've stopped a network attack or, you know, whatever you can imagine. But there's a an emotional impact that your customer has um, that is actually going to drive the success of your business. And so that's what you're, you're attempting to discover what that emotional impact can be. And you can do that through observing your customers. Steve Jobs was famous for observing customers. Um, so you can watch what they're doing when they're shopping or watch them, uh, how they're doing uh, their life uh, within the context of uh, the business that you're hoping to create. So you can observe them. Then you ask them, why did they behave the way they did? Uh, you can run experiments that try to measure what a customer would do if your product was in the market versus what they say they would do. Uh, so I think what entrepreneurs usually miss out on is that they're there pitching their idea. Like, you know, I got this great idea. What do you think about X? And there's what you're actually doing is asking the customer to help you instead of you figuring out how you can help the customer. And so you want to do the latter. Don't pitch your idea. Try to understand whether these, these uh, whether your audience has this deep need that you think that they have. So, do you think that companies should actually do this process before they even build anything? Uh, do you think this should be even be before a wireframe of, of of a software developed, or because I mean, I don't know. Even the timing of this is, I think, crucial. Don't you think? Um, you know. To really, really get that understanding instead of – because sometimes you feel like companies try to talk their customers into something as opposed to talking to them or right. with them. Right, and so again, it's it, you know the moment you're trying to talk somebody into something, then then you're pitching your idea. You're not really trying to understand that customer. And there's you know there's uh, there's sort of fly by night entrepreneurs. You know you see them on late night TV that can make money that way, but it's not really creating any value in the marketplace, and it's not how you build a a sustainable business. If you want to start with wireframes, that's fine. Um, I just the the point really is. The lean means eliminating waste in time. So if it actually takes you less time, uh, you think, to get to your insights by using uh, wireframes or, or some of these other methods, uh, prototyping, that's fine. Um, the idea really is, is to not sit, sit down and, and develop the whole product in isolation because the first version will be wrong, George. It's just guaranteed the first version will be wrong. And so will you feel like you've wasted your time and money if you go and build the wrong thing uh, and have to start over? So, yeah. So so why why do startups need the lean model today? Is it Does it have to do with uh, – 
the the need for being faster or is it for wanting to being cheaper or what what's what's what would be the primary reason that well it's it it ends up maybe being uh spending less money early on but that's not really the objective the fast part is how quickly can i get something in front of customers so i can validate what the customer will do rather than what they say they'll do or rather than what i think they will do and so the concept is running these experiments and iterating on these experiments and each iteration of your experiment is an increased fidelity experiment so you're you're starting maybe with a a conversation to validate that these people have this pain that you think they have maybe then you move to uh wireframes or a, a clickable clickable uh you know mobile prototype and then it goes into uh starting to build the basic functionality and it's hypothesis driven experiments i believe if i provide x y percentage of my customers will behave in way z put a stake in the ground go run the experiment measure if it's not right if you fail to achieve your metric then either the metric was wrong or the customer was wrong or the product was wrong so it becomes very actionable if you just measure how many hits on your website there isn't anything measurable there uh regarding whether uh people are engaged with your product so the lean part of this is fast iterations fast experimentation in order to find your early adopters in order to find the customers that will gain uh this emotional impact based upon the value that you're providing in your product. What do you think are some of the most effective methods for getting that deep understanding? Is it through one-on-ones? Is there is there a best practice for that? Is it is it through through, you know, or there's really really not one way of doing it. It's not really about the way you do it, but how you do it. Well, it's you know, it just is a through all of the different you know markets people might be in you know there's just a infinite number of methods look at the um you know the uh the explosion of crowdfunding is a great example kickstarter right is you're building an electronics product or or some piece of a hardware typically you put it on kickstarter you haven't built anything and you have all of these people that are donating money to your to your product to get you to go build it that's an a great example of an experiment because you're getting this real market feedback people are actually paying you currency before you have a product right so it proves whether or not you have a market there and a matter of fact uh in the startup world more and more venture capitalists are are looking to uh entrepreneurs running kickstarter campaigns in order to prove out their market viability before they'll get venture capital funding So uh you know the landing page sort of made famous by Tim Ferriss is an, is another sort of early example you put up a one page website has your value proposition and a big old call to action you drive some traffic see if anybody clicks on that call to action if nobody clicks you either don't have a product you don't know how to get to your customers or your you know the value proposition is wrong so again it gives you very actionable uh results something that you can you can iterate on in order to see if you've got something viable there. Uh uh Zappos was a great example of what we call is the the Wizard of Oz or the Mechanical Turk experiment. So uh, when the founder of Zappos, he wanted to sell shoes online back in 1998, actually was a pretty big effort to build a e-commerce website back in those days. So he didn't go figure out where he was going to get all of his different shoe brands. He didn't order a bunch of shoes and stock his, you know, his uh, garage full of shoes. 
He built a website, walked down the street, took photographs of shoes in somebody else's store, loaded those shoes up on his website, right? So he's got no inventory, zero inventory. People would buy a pair of shoes. He would walk back down to that store, buy those shoes, and ship them to the customer. He's proving the viability that people would be willing to buy shoes even online, even though they couldn't see how they fit, couldn't see how they looked. He was proving that people would behave in that way rather than going and spending hundreds of thousands of dollars back in 98 to build a website in first in, and then try to convince customers to do it. So, so you know, to get back to the Kickstarter model, uh, let's say I, I have a product idea and I put it on Kickstarter and there are people that are actually willing to pay for it. So I got one aspect of it right, but what about the actual product to see the product is going to work? Uh, is that another, just another angle of the lean model? Um, how, where do I go from there? Because, you know, yes, I could create a great presentation and I could sell it, but then, you know, I still need to make the product. Yep. So, so in my book, uh, the Lean Entrepreneur, I have laid out what I call the value stream discovery tool, which allows you to focus on the different components of launching a business from from uh, uh, what you need to eventually get, which is uh, customer awareness, all the way through a customer becoming passionate. And so what you're talking about right there is sort of this MVP portion. It's what I call making the customer satisfied because you're going to fulfill the promise that you've made to your customer with the product. And so what you want to do is you've proven the viability with the Kickstarter. People are like signing up. They're getting all fired up on it. They have funded your campaign. You know that there's market signal there. The next thing that you're going to do is go find a handful of those early adopters and you're going to co-create the product with them. You're going to bring them in and do usability testing. You're going to put the product in front of them and let them play with it and see if they they're interacting with it uh, in the way that you uh, thought that they would. Uh, you're going to ask them, you know, what is the most important functionality? What is going to make them, you know, what, what is this product going to do? Would you share it with your friends? I mean, you're, you're co-creating the product with a, a set of early adopters as you're building the product. And you expand those early adopters over time so that when the product is ready to go, you have all of these people that are, you already know that you've achieved what they need, you've, that you're providing them value, that they're going to be satisfied with the, uh, with the product that you're building. So the problem is, is that with all of this online technology, entrepreneurs immediately go towards how do I automate my acquisition? How do I automate uh, my marketing funnel? How do I scale? They're worried about a thousand customers before they have one. All the, the great businesses of the world start small by focusing on a narrow set of early adopters and working with those early adopters to nail the product before they start going off and trying to get thousands of customers. The idea is not to figure out early on how you're going to launch your, your uh, internet social media marketing campaign. It's you Feed on the street, man. It's you getting out there and finding and establishing a relationship with the early adopters of your customer who become passionate because you're, you're there with them solving a problem, uh, using them and co-creating the product. They become a part of your journey to you know, making big change in the world with your, your amazing product. So why do you think that some companies resist the lean model. Do you think because like what you just said, it's not very sexy for me to take an order for a pair of shoes and then walk over to the shoe store and buy it and then ship it out um, without, you know, 
it's much sexier to have a huge data center behind me running 24-7 and, <laughs> and doing all that other stuff. You think that's part of the reason why some people just, you know, I don't know if they refuse it, but they just don't want to accept that, you know, that's really just a better, more efficient way of building a business. Yeah, no, it's funny. I mean, I think that there's a number of reasons. Number one is it's hard. So, you know, I write a book, Lean Entrepreneur, people read it. Oh, look, it, there's step one, step two. Makes it sound easy. It's actually really hard. It's really hard to figure out how to iterate. It's really hard to figure out what the customers are, are, are going to do rather than what they say. It's really hard to actually build a product that will, uh, you know, that your customers will change their behavior in order to adopt. But it's not that the lean model creates that. It's that that's what the world of entrepreneurship really is. And I think that there's the media loves to create this myth of the visionary, you know, who's tinkering away in, in his garage and has a eureka moment. And then, you know, out comes this product idea. And so you sit down and you build it. And then, you know, the market beats, beats a, uh, a path to your door and you have this overnight success. So that's the story that we tell entrepreneurs. And it's completely wrong. It's not true. There's nobody that did it that way. And so we have this great, you know, myth. And in the reality, what it is, is that these are the people that were out you know, again, feet on the street, just like hustling in order to get the first customer, hustle, hustling in order to get the first 10 customers, hustling in order to get the first 100 customers. And those today are still the successful entrepreneurs, are the ones that don't allow being wrong to stop them. They don't a, a, allow the fact that they've got to change their vision to stop them. The true visionaries are those that relentlessly pursue the change that they want to see, not that they relentlessly pursue whatever their original idea was between their ears. And so it's hard. And there's this myth out there. And I think that that's really my, my quest is to, is to destroy that myth out there so that entrepreneurs can actually start taking the actions that they need to take in order to make the change that they want to see. So what do you think about those entrepreneurs like, you know, maybe even the, the Henry Fords of the world? You know, I think he said something along the, uh, the fact that if I asked my customers, they would have asked for a faster horse or something. Yet he, he managed, to, you know, to, to build the empire that he had built. Do you think that he was not in touch or he was really in touch. It was just he didn't accept the fact that, that he really understood his customers and he knew exactly what they needed. Well, I think that I think that you have to be careful. With, I mean, again, that's all part of the mythology. And so I think successful entrepreneurs love the mythology, right? Thomas Edison was the same way. People love, you know, that they're telling this story about, you know, the wizard of Menlo Park and that they're a genius and that they're visionary and that they're imagining the future and all this kind of stuff. So I, I think we have to be careful about even believing those stories. Henry, there's really no evidence that Henry Ford uh, even said that quote. Uh, my co-author, Patrick Vlasovitz, has got a uh, an article up on the Harvard Business Review that talks about that quote specifically. And so, so that's interesting. But even if he did, let's even say, okay, he did ask. If, if I asked my customers what they, what they wanted, they would have said they wanted a faster horse. So in my viewpoint, you ask the customer what they want. They say they want a faster horse. If you're a sustaining or an incremental uh, innovator, if you're an entrepreneur that's trying to tweak an existing market, you might take that evidence, that, that comment, and you might design a better wheel for the buggy and so that the, the cart and the horse go faster because you've improved the buggy. 
Okay, so again, you haven't done what the customer has asked, but you're solving the customer problem. A disruptive innovator would take that same comment and go, well, forget, we don't need the horse at all. I'm going to build, you know, a 10 horsepower vehicle, and there's no horse attached, but I'm still solving that customer's problem. So again, it comes down to, it's not, the problem isn't in asking the customer. The problem is in, what do you do with the, with the data that you get from the customer? It's not about doing what the customer says. It's about solving their problem. So Henry Ford's original vision was to create farm equipment, to create automated farm equipment. Why? Because he worked on a farm and he hated working on his dad's farm, and that's not how he saw his life to be. So, so Henry Ford's a great example that he actually didn't stick to his big vision because he found a bigger opportunity uh, on, in automobiles. And, oh, by the way, you know, there was dozens of automobile manufacturers before Henry Ford started in the business. Henry Ford's, uh, Henry Ford's big invention wasn't the car. It was taking existing components from other manufacturing processes and combining them in, the new, in a new way. That was Henry Ford's big innovation. And his insight was, if I drive down the cost of a car so that the people who work on my assembly line – can actually buy a car, things are going to go crazy. They're going to go great. They're going to take off. And he was right. So there's a, there's a lot of nuances to the Henry Ford story that I think actually back up my view of the myth of the visionary rather than, uh, than teaches a lesson to entrepreneurs that na- they need to just put their head in the sand and go build what they think they should build. What do you think are the reasons for entrepreneurs wanting to build too many features something that's almost always a detriment to to their efforts how how do you, how can you experiment with having just enough but not too many where, where is that sweet spot in your opinion and and how what can we tell entrepreneurs about finding that sweet spot yeah so it's um it, it sort of gets back to the the concept of the minimum viable product so what is the minimum i have to build in order to prove that the product is viable with a known set of customers so it is a tremendous problem. I think part of it is is that what they're what entrepreneurs are really doing when they build too many features is they're running their own experiments um, by tossing out features, thinking that if they just get the right combination of features, suddenly that their market is going to take off. And so I think that the the way to get around that is uh, is to get out of the building and interact with your customers, find who your early adopters are, work with them to figure out what is the minimum functionality that's going to solve the big problem that they have so that the customers will start to buy, right? So you get to this currency. And once you have a group of customers that have the same problem who are asking for the same things, who are engaged with your product, who are paying you, now you kind of know the group of people that you need to listen to and double down on. And that's really what you're trying to find early on is you're trying to find your high-value customers, the ones that are super engaged with your product but need a little bit more. Now once you find that group, those are the ones that you double down on and you try to build your business around those people. I think most entrepreneurs are trying to be all things to all people, and so they keep adding stuff. And what, they, what they're actually doing is destroying any value that they already have created because they're trying to build for 
you know, one market segment over to the left and another one in the middle and over to the right. They're trying to build for too many people. And really to scale your business, you need to focus on one market segment. You need to dominate that market segment before you move on to others. So in my framework, again, it's discovering what is the – it's running experiments to figure out that functionality that drives the value for a particular set of customers who share the same problem. And then you build out the product based upon what those people are doing. And so you need to build into your product very early on, right from the get-go, a way to measure exactly what your customers are doing inside the product because you must be able to discover the value you must be able to discover the functionality that's driving that value. If you're going to add a feature, add a feature with a hypothesis. If I add this functionality, my customers will do X. And if the customers don't behave, if they don't use that feature, if it's not driving value, take it back out. Don't just put in features and keep them in there. Take the features out that people don't aren't using. Dave McClure, venture capitalist up in the Bay Area, used to uh, sort of tongue-in-cheek, but I actually think it's, it's sort of a great experiment. He used to tell people, take the, start ripping features out of your product, and when your customers start complaining, now you know which ones they, that they were really finding value in. And so, I don't know, we need to just sort of flip the mentality. These entrepreneurs are never going to find product market fit by simply adding features to their product. Um. Does the lean model translate to any kind of business? Uh, are there businesses the, the lean model is less effective, or have you run into anything like that? Or I think that as long as you're keeping within the framework of, uh, you know, um, can I eliminate waste, then I think it, it can apply to any company. I think that, that the uh, – the difficulty is that you don't want to experiment just for experiments sake. So what I try to do is get entrepreneurs to, to figure out what is known and what is unknown. Known is something that's already been proven in the marketplace, right? So nowadays you already know that people will buy shoes on the internet. People will even buy cars on the internet. You know this. So you don't need to run an experiment to validate that again, even if it's your business. So you can look for analogs in the marketplace. You can work, look at uh, service-based businesses, you can look at you know, other existing small businesses, you can look at your own experience, and, and you can start figuring out, okay, well, this behavior is sort of known. What is actually unknown? What is the most important thing that I don't actually know? And so can I go and run an experiment against that unknown and see if I can move that unknown into the known bucket? And once it's known, traditional business practices are fine. Execute Keep your customers engaged. Keep conversations with your customer going. You know, you can still run experiments over on the known side, but you're really optimizing rather than trying to discover um, something new in a, in a world of uncertainty. Um, so it applies differently to things like uh, life sciences where you have a lot of technology risk and you have a lot of regulatory practices, but it still works there. Listen, I'm working for, with some of the biggest companies in the world, GE, you know, Capital One, uh, uh, into it. Some of these huge companies are using these lean startup practices now to jumpstart their innovation practices. So if it applies to these huge companies as well as uh, startups in Silicon Valley, it applies to your audience businesses as well. Try to think of what's unknown versus known. Known, you execute. Unknown, run experiments to discover 
what the, the value is, what the functionality that you need, move it into the known category, execute. Are, are there companies that you have worked with in the past or that you have seen that really got that lean model right? Maybe an example that you can bring us. You brought up the Zappos early on, but is there any other company that comes to mind? Well, you know, uh, there's a number of companies that are using these methodologies that uh, your audience might be familiar with. Dropbox, uh, HubSpot, uh, the content marketing platform. Um, they're really, they're really uh, kind of all over the place now. I think one of my, one of my favorites is this uh, company called uh, AppFog, um, and so they were, they, the their founder was a, you know, he was a hacker. He was a computer guy, and he's. Uh, He's looking for uh, cloud services for people who develop in the PHP programming language. There, this a similar product. There was an analog in the marketplace uh, where cloud services for people that programmed in Ruby on Rails, uh, uh, Heroku, already existed. Um, so Lucas decided that what he was going to do is build that for PHP developers. And so it's late one night, and he was going to build it. And his wife says, "Ah, it's late. You know, come to bed. You can start working on this over the weekend or whatever." And so he built this one-page landing, uh, this one-page la uh, website, Haruko for PHP. Took that URL and put it on Hacker News, where there was a conversation going around uh, based on this need. Uh, went to bed. Woke up the next morning, 800 people were signed up for his, for his uh, product, even though he hadn't written a line of code. Um, so, so rather than going and trying to get 1,600 or, or 3,000 customers, he started coding, and he, you know, a month goes by, and he's got 4,000 people signed up, and he's, and he's thinking to himself, if I keep going down this path, I'm going to lose these customers because it's going to take me six months to build this rock-solid platform. So instead, he launches this survey. And I, I call it a high hurdle experiment where he's trying to turn those 4,000 customers into 24. He's going exactly the opposite of the way more, most entrepreneurs think. He's going narrow. He's going small to go big. He wants to turn those 4,000 into 24, 36 passionate customers. So he writes this huge marketing survey. It's going to take an hour long to get through this market, this survey. You know, it's not a best practices survey with nine questions and radio buttons and check boxes. It's nine pages, open-ended questions. Why are you here? What are you trying to create? What do you, what's the value you're trying to get? What's the meaning of life? What's your favorite color? Anything to get these people not to fill out that survey. 2,000 people filled out that survey. These people were rabid for his platform. But what he did is he, he read each one of those surveys. He called them on the phone. He did data mining on top of it, and he figured out that there were three or four features that he could build that if he just launched those three or four features that he would get started, right? He would be able to give them something that would solve the problem to the degree that people would start to pay for the product. So he scrapped his big, huge, you know, ivory tower platform, and he built just these three or four features and just the back end for those three or four features Features, by the way, that were not the ones that he had prioritized, uh, but he built that, launched it, just took off, exponential growth, raised $10 million. He had an exit about six months ago, and, and, and the lesson there is, is he went small to go big. He narrowed down to his most passionate uh, customers. He built with them, right? He figured out what are the features that they could uh, benefit from early on. So that's their minimum viable product. He found his passionate market constituency, which is his product market fit. Then he knows he moved that from unknown into the known bucket. Here's my customers. Here's what I'm going to build off of. Here's who I listen to. Here are the bugs I'm going to fix. 
And so it's not like he kept it at this minimum viable product. No, he now he knew how to scale it based upon uh, this demand that was getting pulled from him from the market. So I love that story. And, and maybe your entrepreneurs can figure out how they can run similar experiments in order to find that passionate group, group of customers that's really going to drive revenue. Well, wow, thanks for sharing this story. Uh, before before getting to how people or companies can connect with you, um, tell me, how does it change your business prospects or your life to be a New York Times bestselling author? <laughs> well, for one, I do a lot of I do a lot more podcasts, George. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, it's um, I, I'm really fortunate in that I get to uh, I get to live an extraordinary life where I meet thousands, literally thousands of entrepreneurs around the world. And these are people that maybe just want to change their life and become more independent and uh, to people that really do want to build the next great startup and change the world. And so uh, there's not really a, you know, this already, George, there's not a better group in the world to work with. They're optimistic and they're hardworking and they're hustlers. And, and, uh, and so I'm just I'm I'm really a fortunate person that I get to work with with uh, entrepreneurs uh, and as well as those entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs that work inside of big businesses and they're really trying to create change and they're trying to do uh, innovation and, and so I I get to go around the world and 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 speak with these people so uh, sounds I'm, sounds awesome yeah. so so Brent how can people connect with you what website or what's the best way for people to reach, to reach out to you. Right. So uh, people can uh, email me at brant at marketbynumbers.com. I blog at marketbynumbers.com. I'm on Twitter at Brant Cooper and LinkedIn at Brant Cooper. Uh, For large uh, businesses, uh, I've got a Moves the Needle uh, website, um, but that's that's really more for the large enterprises. Um, I've also just uh, collaborated on a new book and I'm running a, a, a crowdfunding campaign right now. So people should uh, ch- check out leanbrandbook.com. Uh, we're really talking about the the co- part of building a business where you can turn satisfied customers into uh, passionate customers. So that would be another great way to uh, get involved in, in, in what I'm working on. All right, everyone. So you heard Brent reach out to him. He he's if you need any help with lean anything lean he is your man. Thank you, Brent. Appreciate your time today. I wish you much luck. Hopefully, you can come back. Maybe talk about your next book sometime. I'd love to, George. Thanks for having me. That was fun. Thank you.